Welcome to Trauma-Informed Parenting, where you can find information about adoption, foster care, parenting a child with a capital letter syndrome, such as ADD, ADHD, FASD, SPD, on the spectrum, etc., and trauma-informed parenting, all in one place. I'm Kathleen Guire, your host, mother of seven, four through adoption, former National Parent of the Year, author, teacher, and speaker, but more important than any of those things, I'm a parent just like you. I know what it's like to raise kiddos with trauma histories and capital letter syndromes. I used to feel as if I were the only one struggling, and because I felt that way, I isolated myself. I don't want you to feel alone in your parenting journey. So grab a cup of coffee and join me for Trauma-Informed Parenting, a Coffee Break Podcast. Hi, Kathleen Guire here. Welcome to this episode of Trauma-Informed Parenting. We're doing a series here, Trauma-Informed Parenting 101 with Dr. Jared. And I am not going to read his whole bio this time. I will link it in the notes, but I will let him start talking right now. Hi, Kathleen. Thanks for having me back and really appreciate the opportunity to share this information with your audience. And during the first recording, I know we covered kind of a broad spectrum overview of trauma and a little bit on the adverse childhood experiences research, but and some basic 101 things on trauma-informed care. But today, really going to take a deeper dive into trauma-informed parenting. Awesome. So I encourage your audience to listen to part one because everything that I talk about today is just going to be an extension of what I've already talked about. Yeah, I'll make sure that I share that in the weekly email when this one comes out and the show notes. Wonderful. So when you think about becoming trauma-informed and then you put the word parenting in there, obviously that can apply to caregivers, other individuals living in the home, extended family members. I would even include probably very close friends, neighbors, whoever comes around that individual. If we can use these approaches, I think it's going to lead to better outcomes. So at the core of trauma-informed parenting, we're going to be utilizing practices that are really rooted in empathy and compassion and validation and attunement and really leaning into that child and understanding that child's needs, wants, being able to model appropriate behavior to that child as well. I know we're going to do a recording coming up on self-regulation and form parenting. So anytime we can model healthy forms of emotional regulation, self-control, even during times of great stress. We're not asking people to be perfect in how how they act around their children, but if they can model that behavior when they're stressed and be able to name those emotions and not fly off the handle or yell or scream or swear, that is going to be a very good thing. Very, very important, too, when we think of trauma-informed parenting to have a a really good understanding of attachment theory. And hopefully in a future episode, we'll be talking specifically about attachment-informed parenting as well, because if you are becoming trauma-informed, 
by default, you are coming attached, really becoming attachment informed as well. And at the core of this, Kathleen, too, I really think empowerment and connection and safety and that strengths-based approach are really key to, to trauma-informed parenting. But I would add one more thing, too, to this is really practicing good self-care as a parent or caregiver. So often I consult with multiple organizations, different professionals, different people. And if we're not taking care of ourselves in terms of like nutrition and getting good sleep and exercise and having good balance and all of the things that are important for living a healthy lifestyle, we're more likely to burn out. And that can lead to parental burnout, which I'll talk about in a minute. But Kathleen, any thoughts from your standpoint? Any any. Yeah, I think that, yeah, just focusing on that self-care is so, so important because I have moms will reach out to me and I will ask about that because I can tell they're, they're burnout because often for some reason, this is human nature, we don't reach out for help until we're so overwhelmed and so burnt out, we don't think we can take another step. And when I ask about that self-care, well, I don't have time for that kind of thing. So I think it's really great that you are saying how important that is it's it's kind of that philosophy of when you're in a, on an airplane you put on your own oxygen mask first wouldn't you say absolutely i love that that's a great analogy that's perfect i think yeah a lot of caregivers give 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 constantly to others and mm-hmm. not give to themselves and but maybe we'll just spend a moment on like parental burnout because it is such a big, big topic to be aware of. And the signs and symptoms of parental burnout are many and varied. I think a lot of people are probably familiar with like professional burnout and empathy fatigue, compassion right. fatigue, vicarious trauma. All of those can apply to a parent. And parental burnout is even higher among parents who are raising children who have special needs where mm-hmm. maybe the child's not sleeping at night and if the child's not sleeping a lot of times the caregivers aren't sleeping either so some of the signs and symptoms just to be on the lookout for for parental burnout more more irritability kind of having more of a short fuse things are just bugging you more and you can't seem to let things go so you might see more like rumination Mm -hmm. foggy brain is not uncommon where you know, you're, you're sleep deprived, you're burnt out, you're pounding down the caffeine, you're eating things that are very high in sugar, which are all not good for you, obviously. Right. And you just can't come up with the words sometimes. You lose thought mid-sentence and you just seem more spacey and forgetful. And that, that can be very problematic, especially if you're driving or in some sort of high stress job. And I, I hear these symptoms a lot from, from caregivers I consulted with. Headaches are going to be more common. Be on the lookout for that. When people are burnt out, their their body is going to probably give them signals to slow down. So stomach aches, headaches, mm. back pain, body tension, those kind of things. More anxiety, more depression. You're starting to have more conflict with people where... Normally, you don't usually get that upset, but you're you're noticing you're having a hard time managing conflict, and there's more misunderstandings where there's just breakdowns in communication, and 
in some cases too the person might start exhibiting like ptsd like symptoms it might not be like full-blown post-traumatic stress disorder Mm -hmm. but it might be symptoms that somewhat mimic that so we really want to be aware of parental burnout is a toxic stressor and a, a type of trauma so if the parent is burnt out they're more likely to be in a position to not parent their children as effectively as if they're not burnt out. So right. Those are just a few things about parental burnout, I, I would definitely say. I feel like you just described me in some seasons of my life because it, it's, there's, there's no secret that we adopted four children, a sibling group of four to add to our three and our family is full of capital letter syndromes. We're on the we've got on the spectrum, FASD, ADHD, dyslexia, you name it. Like we're like capital letter syndrome alphabet soup. So there have been seasons just listening to you describe that. It's like, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, that was me for, you know, seasons, not not long seasons, because I would realize, hey, I'm not eating food or I'm beginning to feel anxious all the time, or I haven't worked out for a week. And that's kind of working out as one of my huge stress relievers. In fact, my schedule was pretty packed today, and I was kind of like, I don't know if I'm going to go to the gym. And I said, no, no, I'm going. I'm going because that's one of the ways that I relieve my stress, and I feel better after a workout. So you have to... If you heard that list and you're like, oh my gosh, that's me right now, there's no, you're not just going to wake up tomorrow and be done with it. You have to proactively pursue self-care, wouldn't you say? You can't just snap out of it. Absolutely. I I practice self-care throughout the day as well. So you got to pay attention, Mm -hmm. I think to what your body's telling you and you know are you drinking enough water Mm -hmm. meal skipping is a huge thing that so many people do and i don't want to get too far in the weeds but one of the best things people can do to help improve their mental health is to keep their blood sugars regulated as much as possible so if Mm -hmm. you're skipping meals that can throw off your blood sugar levels if you're pounding down the sugar sweet beverages and the processed foods that can spike it, and that may have a huge impact on insulin and glucose functioning and cortisol and melatonin, all, all kinds of things that we could get into in the future, but that's another huge topic to, to, to be aware of. But right. yes, self-care is so important. And it's such, you know, what you're saying is I've done a lot of study on hormones and nutrition, and that is one of the practices that I do every day is make sure I have my quart of water right here right now and I'm drinking from it is that I'm eating regular meals and snacks to keep my blood sugar level and that is such a simple thing that we can do and it does take time it does take forethought but it's a simple self-care thing that is not that difficult to do so I think I think that's yeah maybe at a later date we can dig (laughs) dig into that on a deeper level yeah, and you bring up a point I should have said earlier. I totally forgot that the HPA axis, the hypothalamus pituitary adrenal axis. If you become trauma informed, in my opinion, you got to become HPA axis informed. And you mentioned mm-hmm. hormones. The HPA axis is our hormone regulator, mm-hmm. and it's part of our endocrine 
system and trauma throws that off and stress and burnout and hardship and adversity, all of those things can throw that into whack. And the HPA access is related to cortisol levels and it communicates with our prefrontal cortex. It's really fascinating topic that I encourage your audience to also at least learn about the basics on because if you understand that you're going to be in a much better position to understand why people react the way they do during times of increased stress worry and hardship as well i agree and why your your hormones can get very quickly thrown out of balance and how you can get them back in balance knowing that is like you said it's empowering you know these things and you can do these things and that is practicing self-care so that you can parent your children better and you can model for them these behaviors that will help them become balanced. Absolutely. So back to trauma-informed parenting directly, all these other things we're talking about are absolutely a critical component to this big puzzle. But again, to recap, what is trauma-informed parenting? What would that actually look like? One of the big things we need to do is to understand and recognize the impact that trauma has on the individual and the entire family. So that first one, that first segment we did, really understanding kind of the basics of trauma, the different dimensions of it, complex trauma, developmental mm. trauma, betrayal trauma, the ACEs research. The I really see the foundation of trauma-informed care and trauma-informed parenting is safety. It's like building a house. That yes. is the slab. You got to make sure the child feels safe. With, without that, how do you put up the walls and the windows and the plumbing and, and so on? That's the foundation to build on. And how do we do that? Consistency, structure, predictability, utilizing those attachment-based approaches that we'll talk about in future episodes, but like through an attachment lens, the caregiver, the parent is really dedicated to understanding their child, their, mm -hmm. their child's strengths, hobbies, skills, interests, attributes, but also their limitations. Right. The, the caregiver really has that strong desire to, to nourish that child emotionally, physically, spiritually, getting them connected to positive outlets really has a, a desire to to protect that child from harm at all costs so those are kind of some of the basics of attachment based kind of parenting but being an advocate utilizing strengths-based approaches helping that child learn how to understand and managing their emotions more effectively and that's where those self-regulation informed parenting skills are going to come into play as well so those are some elements of it, and depending on the need of your child, obviously that child may have a therapist, a social worker, a psychiatrist, mm. a speech-language pathologist, sensory occupation, whatever it is. That whole team really should become trauma-informed and working together as a team with the goal of helping improve that child's overall health and wellness and functioning throughout life. So those are a few things we'd want to be aware of. If you've studied this, Kathleen, in, in great detail, mm -hmm. people will probably come across something called Trauma Systems Therapy Foster Care, TST-FC. Mm. 
it's something I would recommend people being aware of. There's not a lot of literature on this, but it is a type of kind of approach that's really rooted in what we're talking about here. And some like child welfare agencies, I think, offer training for social workers and for okay. foster parents through this trauma systems therapy foster care approach it's really a lot of the things i've already talked about but that's one model that's being used out there in some jurisdictions in the united states there's multiple other ones we don't have time to go into all of those right like um empowered to connect also um but i want to if you don't mind i would like to backtrack just for a minute to what you started talking about which was the foundation of safety And I'll start with a comment, then I'll ask you a question, because I had this misconception when we brought our four children home, that's in air quotes, to their new home, that if they were safe, that, you know, there were no intruders coming in, there was no one sneaking into their bedroom anymore and, you know, attacking them, there was no violence, that they should feel safe. But then I learned very, very quickly because several of my kids were still having night terrors and there were so many triggers that there is a difference between safety and felt safety. So if you could explain like what is the difference between those things because safety is so important and feeling safe is even more important, correct? Absolutely. I mean... When we think of that, we can do all the right things. You bring the child into the home, and it's the most calming, loving, stable home ever. Mm-hmm. Does that mean that that child still may not have potential trauma triggers? Mm-hmm. Trauma triggers can come from anything, really. Good things can be a trauma trigger right. for some. If that person associates what you think to be good, that child associates it with something bad. Some of the most common trauma triggers I think we want to be on the lookout for, loud noises. So maybe the child is in a home where people like to play music. Not mm-hmm. a bad thing in and of itself, but maybe the music, it's too. maybe it's too loud or a certain song or a certain movie. Hand and body gestures can be a potential trauma trigger for some individuals where you're trying to do everything you can to nurture that child, give the child hugs, but maybe that child has had some really horrific traumas happen to mm. them before they came to your home. So just the very nature of that parent trying to give that child a hug at first could be a really potential trauma trigger. Right. Any kind of chaos, any kind of confusion, or even changes in routines or transitions can be a huge trauma trigger for some kids. There's actually a lot of studies that have come out in the last couple of years about COVID-19 and the amplified impact that's had on certain special needs populations where maybe they were in school for a period of time and then they had to do online learning. The change in routine could be a trauma trigger. Mm-hmm. Right. Maybe you're, maybe you're in a house. It's, again, stable, calm house, but outside the house is there community violence going on or maybe the police or fire trucks go by and blare their sirens really loud that could be a trauma trigger for for someone 
the very nature of being separated from a caregiver, even for a short period of time at first, could be a trauma trigger for some of these kids. Just being aware of kids that are diagnosed with like disinhibited social engagement disorder or reactive attachment disorder, these things get even more complicated when you start adding these other kind of diagnostic labels to the equation. And if you have a child with autism or fetal alcohol spectrum disorder and and these things go undiagnosed as well. These can be all potential stressors for that family. So those would be a few things to think about. Again, there's many, many more, but those are a few that come to my mind. Hmm. Well, I just wanted to clarify that because I know that I've had many moms who are fostering or have recently adopted or even their child has a capital letter syndrome and they'll contact me and say, well, I'm doing all these things, but it's not working. And it and it's not that it's not working, it's that that child does not feel safe. So then you have to dig a little deeper. What are their triggers? What's going on? What set them off? Um, what's the environment like? What kind of environment do they need? How can I change the environment? And I'll just use an example. My, my daughter, um, all of my grandkids, her six children are all on the spectrum in varying degrees and you know how that works it's all it's, it's all different yes. so uh, she had someone comment to her a couple of weeks ago well I would I don't think your kids are on the spectrum I would never think that they you know they seem like they they're pretty calm and they they navigate well and my daughter Audrey said that's because I have modified our home environment to fit their needs and because of that, they, they are thriving and they're doing well. And, and that's so important for parents to know. It's like we parents have to do that sort of work for them. They're not going to figure it out themselves. They're not going to say, hey, here's my triggers. Can you deal with it? No, we have to be like detectives and figure out what's going on. Absolutely. And again, we could do all the right things. Mm-hmm. And what happens if, I'll give a couple things to think about. What happens if we're doing all the right things on paper, but we're dealing with some developmental immaturity? Maybe it's a 16-year-old individual, but they function as a 7-year-old. Mm-hmm. Are we modifying what we do to match their emotional, social, and developmental age? What happens if they have digestive health issues and no one's ever picked that up? There's a huge connection between gut problems and emotional and behavioral problems maybe there's an untreated food allergy and no one's ever even connected the dots there right maybe i i hear this all the time on cases i consult on the person has a sugar addiction Mm. so again back to the sugar thing again if they're pounding down the soda all day long and they're not drinking water are they dehydrated are their insulin levels out of whack All of these things can throw their body and their mind kind of where it's not working properly. And a lot of these individuals, in some cases, may not have the words to communicate with the caregiver saying, my stomach hurts right now. I don't feel good. And it may come out as more irritability or rage control issues. Mm -hmm. Screen time is a big thing, too, I hear. In many cases, I consult on my child or teenager or adult just is on the screen all day long and they're they just can't detach and they seem like they're addicted to 
being on their phone or the computer, that's another issue that needs to be taken into account. And one other thing, alexithymia, mm-hmm. that is a huge threat to emotional kind of health and wellness. If someone has alexithymia, which is actually quite common among people with extensive trauma histories, and half of people on the autism spectrum have alexithymia, according to mm. the research, they're going to have a hard wow. time naming emotions, labeling them, understanding them, and a lot of those emotions go into the body, which then exacerbate somatic symptoms. So they might have, again, more headaches, chest pain, stomach aches, and all that body discomfort can come out as emotional behavioral dysregulation. So many topics to think about, Kathleen, but those are a few of the big ones that I consistently hear about on Mm -hmm. cases I consult on. Well, I want to ask a couple questions. We were talking about the sugar addiction, and I find that kids that have um, FASD commonly are addicted to sugar. Is that more common for them? because of the alcohol that was in their system prenatally? There, every case I consult on with FASD, there's something going on with having an unusual relationship with food or sugar, it seems like. Okay. There's only been a few studies specifically on FASD and kind of problematic eating behaviors, and the research right now shows that that population deals with maybe more issues in this area. There's actually been several studies related to autism and ADHD related to these topics. Mm. But specific to FASD, what might cause someone with FASD to maybe misuse sugar and almost have addictive-like tendencies? The variables that I see, low self-control, so they have a hard time putting on the brakes where they're looking for immediate gratification. Okay. That could be a component. We know from the literature that close to half of the people on the FASD spectrum at some point in their life may start using drugs or alcohol. So is there some sort of addictive tendency already at play? It's difficult to know. But Mm. we know that a high percentage of people with FASD unfortunately has have also had trauma histories on top of the prenatal alcohol exposure so if you throw trauma into the mix especially Mm. if the person's had a high level of childhood trauma what happens high levels of childhood trauma have been linked to more blood sugar dysregulation issues more gut problems more sleep issues so then when someone is not sleeping properly, they may not be able to handle their stress well, their hormones can be off, their HPA access has been shown to be off. The research does support that prenatal alcohol exposure can throw off the HPA access. Hmm. And the overwhelming majority of people that FASD also have sleep problems. So those things in and of itself could trigger someone to like crave sugar because maybe their dopamine levels and serotonin are off. So we have some biochemical things going on, but then environmentally too, are they in an environment where they're very gullible and suggestible and everyone around them is doing these things? So Mm. they'll glob onto that. So we need to be aware again, how we're modeling this behavior. And Mm. there's a big connection. You take FASD out of this equation. There's actually plenty of research literature to show that people who are on the screen for extended periods of time 
may be more prone to drinking sugar-sweetened beverages and snacking on things that aren't good for them. Oh, wow, yeah. Well, you can, well, we can add we my... We can talk all day about that topic. This <laughs> right, is a fascinating topic. Well, I'm glad that you brought that up, and I want to say something about that in a second, but I will say that I used to call Mondays for my children Hangover Monday, not because they drank, but because when they went to Sunday school on Sunday, they inevitably ate all the extra donuts, even though I had put it, one of my children I put like on his file, please do not give him sugar. And I asked the teacher about it and she said, well, I never get to see those files. So thank you for approaching me personally. I will make sure he's not taking the six leftover donuts with him when he leaves. But Monday morning, it was just hangover Monday they had. They couldn't wake up. They had headaches or, you know, the ones that could vocalize what was really going on. And because I homeschooled, I noticed that their learning ability went way downhill after copious amounts of sugar. So you can add that little story to your research. Absolutely. So it sounds like insulin spikes, glucose spikes, and then when you have spikes there, that can sometimes throw off the gut, and all these things then can lead to more inflammation in the body, which then can throw off the HPA access, and then if that's off, everything else is off. Mm -hmm. And we already know that people with FASD have executive functioning impairments, so then that can further impact their learning, attention, memory, problem-solving, decision-making. I'm, I'm not giving any medical advice here, but mm -hmm. one thing I would say is... If you have a child that is dealing with any of these issues, it might be it might be helpful to talk to your healthcare provider and see if working with a nutritionist would be a good good idea because the right. research does support it. Right, I would agree because we did take our youngest to a a trauma informed pediatrician and nutritionist, two separate people, but who gave us some great things to do with him. But the other thing I just wanted to mention, even we're kind of running out of time, but we'll obviously cover this in the future, hopefully, is the screen time because I don't know if you know this, but often in autism communities, and I'm not talking about the experts, I'm just talking about the people, the advice for your kids is let them have that screen time because that's how they decompress. And I was told that. In fact, I was told by a psychiatrist that I took my son to, and I had mentioned the gaming, is it's making him angry, he can't regulate, we need to lessen that, and I was told that it was all my fault and that I had spoiled him. Now, I'm not trying to give psychiatrists a bad name, that was just one person, and I was also told by people in the autism community that I should let him have more screen time. So I will let you take that one. <laughs> um, I don't think that's a good idea to give people more screen time, regardless of who it is. Have, having some, probably not a bad idea, but tons of literature has been published on autism and screen time. And I've given actually several talks on the topic. And sometimes people on the spectrum obviously feel more comfortable in the online environment because of those social communication problems. Mm-hmm. But if gone unchecked, mm. it, they can have that laser pinpoint focus, which is basically weak central coherence, the topic of theory of mind, 
Perspective mm-hmm. taking issues comes into play where the person in some cases is talking to people online and they don't understand age. Mm-hmm. I get called all the time on situations where the individual may have engaged in inappropriate sexual behavior online where that wasn't their intent. The, right. the issue of gullibility comes into play too, being taken advantage of. There's a case I consulted on where the person was conned into giving tons of money away to someone online they didn't even know. And then the other, there's many issues. The other, two other issues is if, if someone's on the screen all the time, if they're living a sedentary lifestyle, just laying around and being on the screen and having a, a non-active lifestyle that's been shown to increase inflammation, gut problems, joint problems, mental health issues. And then if they're staring at the screen all day long into the evening, that can throw off their melatonin levels and it can further impact their sleep. Because I think, don't quote me on this, I think around 70% of people with autism have sleep problems and around 90% of people on the autism spectrum also have digestive health problems. So there's there's so many right. layers to take into account. Yeah, I was I just reading about that. Example. I was just reading about that today about the autism spectrum. P- people have sleep disorders, and um, so yeah, that. And I appreciate you talking about that because I brought that up because I'm sure that other parents may be getting the same advice from someone that I got. And yes, it's okay to have some screen time, but if you let them overindulge in the screen time. There are so many factors. And sometimes those teens especially get can get extremely violent. Seen it myself personally and after too much screen time. I hear it all the time. I absolutely do. And Kathleen, if it's uh, helpful, I would be more than happy to do a segment on screen time and I'll take any opinion out of it. And I'll just kind of regurgitate what the research has found on it. And I've, then people can make the decision for themselves, kind of how they want to do that. I think that would be amazing. And we're out of time for today, but I'm going to let you give one last little whatever you want to tell us. Well, let's end on a positive note. There's many other things to cover in future segments, but... When we think of trauma-informed parenting, trauma-informed care, focus on building resilience for Mm. you and your family. And if you're not familiar with the topic of resilience, think of it as almost kind of like a, a shield in a way that helps people bounce back easier from stress and trauma and worry and hardship. And if you were to start implementing family resilience kinds of approaches directly, within your family system, teaching everyone in there how to share information clearly. Mm. Is it utilizing okay. positive communication, emotional sharing, being able to name your emotions, labeling things, modeling that, engaging in like collective problem solving, helping become more adaptable too and flexible. So we don't wanna be rigid, we wanna be adaptable and flexible really instilling hope, guidance, protection, getting resources for you and your family and connecting with other support networks are just a few things you'd want to consider from a family resilience lens. Well, thank you. Thank you for being on the show again. And 
Listeners, in case you missed it, this will be a regularly occurring Trauma-Informed Parenting 101 with Dr. Jared the first Wednesday of every month. So thank you, Dr. Jared, for giving us time and sharing all of your wisdom and information with us today. You're welcome, Kathleen, and thank you for allowing me to chat with you and your audience. You're welcome, and we will see you next week. Bye. Thanks for listening to Trauma-Informed Parenting. Make sure you subscribe on TraumaInformedParenting.com to receive a free resource and receive a newsletter plus updates when books or new courses are released. Also, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Podomatic, or Spotify and leave a review so other listeners can find trauma-informed parenting and know the value of the show. You're welcome to send me an email to contact at traumainformedparenting.com.